So, uh, <clears throat> yeah, we, we've been waiting to go to China. And so it's something I've been thinking about. And I wrote about it in our update at the end of the year. In the Old Testament, waiting is often synonymous with faith. It gets used the same way, but that's not the way that we often use the word wait. And so I've been trying to understand what it means to wait uh, well. This psalm, Psalm 77, um, is an unfinished story in some ways. There's some psalms that have a complete arc that go from, I was in this situation, I cried out to God, he met me in this way, and he, he rescued me. And this psalm, we, we have, I'm crying out to God, this is my situation in, to some degree, and it goes to worship, but we never come back down. We don't know how his situation is resolved, and we'll, we'll get back to that later. But it's, I think, deliberately an unfinished story, because many of our stories as we are walking through life feel like unfinished stories. We don't know how God is going to, to weave these different pieces together. We're promised that it will be good, and we know the ultimate end of the story, but as we are walking through life, we have many unfinished stories that we're dealing with. And, and this psalm um, was powerful to me in that uh, we currently have an unfinished story. And so we're, we're wrestling with that. What does it mean to wait when we don't know how God will answer our particular prayers in this moment? So let's uh, read together and hopefully... I'll be able to um, or hopefully shed some light on what Asaph is teaching us here. So Psalm 77, I'm reading from the ESV. I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. Yes, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. With your arm redeemed, you with your arm redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water, the skies gave forth thunder, your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind, your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook, your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock 
by the hand of Moses and Aaron. It's the word of the Lord. So I think it's important, uh, it's useful to ponder for a second, why are the Psalms in the Bible? It's an obvious answer, right? It's the song book of God. This is God's um, teaching on how to worship him. He's leading his people in what it means to praise and worship God, right? Um, the Psalms coach us, in a sense, how to draw near to God, how to fellowship with God. But they are not formulaic, right? They are not, um, you know, the Psalms teach us about who God is, but in a different way than a systematic theology book would teach us about who God is. They both would say true things about God, but the Psalms have raw, complex, powerful emotions, situations that run the gamut of human experience, right? And in them, we see lives that look like our real life. Often we will tell you from the pulpit that when we read the Bible, you shouldn't just be looking for yourself in the story, right? You shouldn't be reading David and Goliath and saying, who am I? And say, I'm like David. And pastors always say things like that. In the Psalms, you should suspend that rule a little bit because you are meant to see your life reflected in some way. It doesn't end there, but you are meant to see these people are living life on the same planet I lived on, experiencing the same complex situations that I experience, and they're worshiping the same God that still exists and is interacting with me today. So you get this, the reality, the complexity of human life it comes into collision with the one true living God. And the result in the Psalms is this rich treasure of explosive worship that has all the contours of human life and all the power and truth of who God is. And that is how it, it coaches us um, how to bring real life into relationship with the real living God. So whatever your situation is, you can go to the Psalms and worship God from that situation. And the first lesson that Asaph, the author of this Psalm, would have us learn is we cry aloud to God, right? It's the most obvious thing in this Psalm. And just because it's obvious does not mean it's important. Often it's the other way around. The obvious things are the important things. It's the first thing he says, I cry aloud to God aloud to God and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. And this is what the Psalms teach us to do. This is how Asaph is coaching us. Um, you know, Asaph was one of David's uh, worship leaders. He was one of the people responsible for leading worship in the temple. And so he wrote, um, I think there's a, a dozen Psalms that are attributed to him. And he was coaching people how to respond to their real-life situations. And he says, cry aloud to God. Now, <clears throat> how often do we unnecessarily miss out on the comfort that God has for us because we, we don't do this simple step? Um, I've learned in my marriage that uh, there's a lot of times there's things going on in my head that don't necessarily come out of my mouth. My wife has taught me that it's not actually communication if I simply thought it and I never said it. I don't know if anybody else has ever been in that situation. I have that problem. 
It's one thing to know that there's comfort in who God is. It's one thing to know that God has the answers. It's another thing to actually get on your knees and pray, to actually open your Bible and read it, to actually turn to God. And so don't miss out simply because you won't turn to him. We sang about this this morning over and over again. Sometimes we, we grow weary of relating to God merely by grace. We, we know that he carried us through the last situation. We see his grace in the hindview mirror. We saw how he taught us through our sufferings. We saw how he was faithful. And we get to a new situation and we say, I think I can learn this one on my own. I think, or at least can we do like an 80-20 split? Can I get like 20% responsibility and, and then 80% grace to fill up what I'm lacking? To turn to God. Trust him, go to him. There's no situation too great or too small that is outside of God's care. Speaking of situations that are too small, perhaps you're here this morning and you're like me for many years. I felt like I did not have much suffering in my life, or maybe I I had mildly distressing situations, but I didn't want to consider them suffering. I saw people in my life who, who were going through immense suffering, and I thought, you know, I've I have a relatively easy life. I've um, grew up in a really healthy family, whether it's you know, financial or physical health or relational. I, was, I didn't experience much suffering. I grew up on a dairy farm, and the worst physical injuries I had were a broken pinky finger and a sprained ankle. I don't know how I managed that, but like, I haven't had physical suffering. The worst relational suffering I've been through was church conflict. Um, that was probably the only thing, if you had asked me a few years ago what suffering you had been through, that was probably the only thing I would point to. Well, going to China helped change my perspective on this, not because we went through very extreme suffering, actually the opposite. Actually, in China, we, we opened ourselves up to a whole, whole host of um, small inconveniences, frustrations, misunderstandings, and, and that sort of things. Um, one small example, a few weeks after being in China, I needed to change a light bulb in my house and I needed a Phillips screwdriver to take the cover off the light bulb. Now, if I were living here, I would have my own screwdriver. And if not, I would know where to get it. And even if I couldn't go get it, I'd have a brother and a dad who have tools that are nearby and a dozen friends that I could go to and neighbors that I could ask. I didn't even know how to say Phillips screwdriver. My name is Philip, and I didn't know how to say Philip Screwdriver in Chinese. And so I had to describe, I knew how to say hammer, nail, and screw, but I did not know how to say screwdriver. So I described, and it took me 20 minutes to even describe that I needed to buy a screwdriver. I was talking to my security guard at the, in my building. He gave me directions, and I misunderstood them. So I'm just walking down the street, popping my head into random stores, like, that's women's clothing, not a hardware store. Still not where I'm supposed to be. It took me an hour and a half to buy a screwdriver. It's like, why is this so complicated? And, and you guys have all been there. You've had days where things are, seem unnecessarily inconvenient, where everything you try to do is frustrated. Every moment is, seems unnecessarily unproductive. Well, that's what every day was like in China for a year, or at least four out of five days. And so... Each particular situation was not what I would consider to be a fiery trial. 
I wasn't walking down the street saying, I'm not surprised the fiery trial has come upon me, so I need to think about what God teaches me about suffering in Scripture. These were small things, right? They don't, they don't rise to that level. But the accumulation of all of those things did the same thing that suffering does, which is clouds my view of who God is. There's, there's two great tests of our faith in life, prosperity and adversity. And they do, they do it differently, but they both take our gaze off of who God is. Our prosperity um, beckons us to put our trust in other things. It teaches us that we can be self-sufficient. And there's a deceitfulness of riches that we think that we can find identity and meaning, that we can find our happiness and security in things here and now. Uh, suffering or adversity shakes us up and it tells you you aren't stable. You aren't um, actually secure here and now. And it clouds our view of God and tells us that he might not be good. Or where is he? What, you can't see what he's doing. You can't see what he's up to. The end result is the same, that you aren't actually looking to God. And the accumulation of all of my small little sufferings was the same, that I actually was seeking comfort. I wanted a refuge, and I could not see who God was clearly. And so I learned that I actually need to apply the same um, truths about God, like this psalm, to my situation. If it's true for the extreme, immense suffering, it's true for the everyday suffering. And maybe God didn't bring those larger sufferings in my life because I wasn't learning the lessons from these small things. So whatever your situation is, the first lesson is, is crystal clear. Um, cry aloud to God. Um, the other part that made it crystal clear that this was a problem for me was that my normal sources of comfort were gone. I couldn't rely upon um, my little oasis, my little Eden that we, we tend to create, right? And so I found myself searching for different sources of comfort and realizing what I was doing. Two weeks ago, my pastor preached on one of the Beatitudes, blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. And he said, every human grieves, every human mourns in the course of their life. And every human in that process will seek comfort. The question is, where are you seeking that comfort? What are you looking to? And so when my normal sources of non-divine comfort were removed from me, I realized I was able to see that pattern and realize what I was doing. So where, where do you seek comfort? Um, now, we're going to move on to verses uh, 3 and 4 here. So we see Asaph seeking God. He's searching for God. He's crying aloud. And now he says, starting in verse 4, you hold my eyelids open. And he's, so he's not sleeping. I'm so troubled that I cannot speak. He's actually not speaking either. He's speechless and sleepless, which is hard to say. And he's, he's seeking God, asking God to comfort him. And if you skipped down to verse 11, he actually gets to remembering who God is and praising him and worshiping him. Now, um, what would this psalm be if it skipped this central section? If he just said, I'm in distress, 
and then went directly to God is my comfort. I remember who God is, and I'm, I'm going to praise him and worship him. And it didn't have these, these verses. Um, I think, unfortunately, that's actually how we live often. We don't actually do the work of thinking about what is the question that this suffering is pressing upon our hearts. So if the first lesson is cry aloud to God, the second one is get to the root of your question. So Asaph actually, um, he's teaching us what, what he does to bring his heart back into equilibrium, so to speak. He actually articulates the particular doubts that are arising in his heart. Now, um, there's a translation issue here. I'm sure you guys have, have learned the Hebrew did not have vowels, right? The way that it was written is written without vowels. So you have a list of con consonants, and as you go back and read it, you have to put the vowels back in. Usually, it's fairly easy to understand. There's only one way that it, it kind of fits. Sometimes, there's two possible ways, or sometimes more, that you can put the vowels back in and get different readings. So... Verse 10 is one of those places. Um, if you had a different translation, you might have had something that's quite different from what my verse 10 says. Um, the one says, as the ESV, that you will, he will appeal to the years of the right hand of the Most High. And this, this is going with the rest of the psalm where he's saying, I'm going to turn, I'm going to remember who God is. I'm going to look at who God is. I'm going to appeal to what I know about God. The other translation is something along the lines of, this is my grief that the right hand of the Most High has changed. And that's actually, um, in the last 50 years, scholars think that that's probably the original reading. But it seems kind of, uh, you understand why translators prefer the other one in some cases, because it's saying God has changed, which we know God cannot change. So what is Asaph saying here? Well, well, this reading would actually go with the list of questions above. And, and in this reading, these questions are not rhetorical. They're actually the heartfelt questions that are arising in the midst of his very distressing situation. He is saying, it feels like, it seems like God has forgotten to be favorable. That he said he has steadfast love, but in the midst of my situation right now, it feels like his love has ceased I know that he has promised things, but it seems like his promises have come to an end. I know that he said he's gracious, but it seems like he's forgotten. If you look through the things in these, uh, in verses um, 7 to 9, these attributes are reflecting God's self-revelation throughout the Pentateuch, where he's saying the Lord, Lord is uh, gracious, compassionate, showing mercy to generations. Um, all of those things, or many of those things, show up here. And so he's reflecting on that and saying, this is who you said you are. And yet in my situation, I am not seeing how that could be true. Has anyone ever been in that situation? Has anyone ever felt those questions arise in their hearts? But sometimes in the church, we think the solution to those questions is to say, no, don't look at it. I didn't think that. I didn't feel that. Don't acknowledge it. And Asaph is saying, actually, if you articulate it, 
it becomes crystal clear what you should do. And, and that's been my own experience as well. If you're actually able to get to the heart of what is bothering you, because you've been in church, because you've read your Bible, you actually know, uh, well, that's not right. That's not what God says. And you'll see in verses 11 to 20 that that's actually what Asaph does. As soon as he's able to articulate, it feels like God has changed. He says, no, no, no. I know who my God is. I will remember what he's done. So I think he's actually teaching us uh, to articulate what the particular question on our hearts is. Somehow I've managed to get all of my notes mixed at this point. Um, so Asaph is saying, what I see and feel does not line up with what I read about God in the Bible, right? And so we are told we're meant to live by faith, not by sight. So he's articulating, if I lived by sight, this is what I would believe about you right now. It doesn't look good, but yet I know these things that I know by faith uh, who you are. Um, so, sorry. When we see behaviors, when we see uh, inordinate reactions, when we see disordered desires on the surface of our life, underneath there somewhere, there are questions, there are beliefs, there are, there are idols or unbelief or pride that are causing the, those particular sinful behaviors or, or disordered reactions in some way. And if you simply look at the behavior and say, stop doing that, you won't actually address the level that the gospel actually addresses, which is our heart. God looks at our heart. And if you are, if you're sinning, um, if you are in despair, if you're depressed, um, it's because to some degree you don't see God for who he is. Now, I, I don't want to speak flippantly about depression. I, I feel like I've tasted enough of that to know that when you're in the midst of it, it doesn't feel that simple. And if someone comes to you and says, oh, well, you just don't know who God is. If you simply believe the right things about God, it'll all change. Well, that does not feel nice when someone says something like that in the midst of a very discouraging, depressing uh, time. And yet, um, I'm not trying to give a simplistic, just, you know, take two verses and call me in the morning answer. And yet, uh, your journey through and out of depression, in some part, will include a move from unbelief to faith. And, and I know that because when we see him clearly, when we stand before our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, when we see him, we will not be depressed. When we see him for who he is, we will not doubt those things. And so to some degree, we are not seeing him clearly. And often, we don't make that move because we don't articulate. We don't get to the root of what we do believe about God in the midst of our despair. For me, um, one, of my, one of the things that became clear as, as I was doing this in China is I believed my identity was built on my productivity. And facing all of these daily frustrations, if it takes an hour and a half to buy a screwdriver, how am I supposed to be productive in this country? I'm, I'm here to plant a church, and I can't even buy a screwdriver. 
So those kinds of frustrations um, made me constantly feel unproductive. And I finally got to the point where I was able to articulate that I, I think my productivity, my performance is what defines my identity. That my productivity, constantly being busy, achieving something visible, is actually what God is concerned about. Now, um, I grew up in this area, Mennonite background. We love productivity. We love industriousness. And it's a good thing, usually. But sometimes, if we take that into you know, replacing our identity in Christ, it can, be, um, it can be a roadblock in our faith. And I had to come to the point of saying, my identity is built on Christ's performance. He was much more productive in saving me than I am. And so he's called me to, to be faithful, and I'm trying to be faithful. And yet at the same time, if I have a string of very unproductive days because I'm constantly being frustrated, constantly being misunderstood, constantly not knowing where I'm supposed to go, just the inconveniences of moving to another country, um, my identity is not threatened by that. My justification is not threatened by that. And that only became clear to me when I was able to articulate, I believe I'm justified by productivity. And until I was, as soon as I was able to articulate that, I was able to, to move and say, of course that's not true. I'm justified by faith in Jesus Christ. And I could know those things and still act as if it's not true because I hadn't actually done the work to articulate what, what is the belief that's at the root of this despair. Um, so we, we cry aloud to God, we get to the root of the question, and then the important part, we remember who God is. Is anyone surprised to hear that the Bible is teaching us to remember who God is? No. Again, it's obvious, and yet it's sometimes the most difficult thing to do. Look at verses 11 and 12. He says, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. He uses four, three words, total of four times in two verses, relating to thinking, relating to thinking about who God is. Now you can sometimes have this attitude. I've, I've seen it in people I'm counseling. Where it's like, yes, I know that. I know who God is. I know those Bible things. I've been in church all my life. But that's not actually what he's saying. He's saying, ponder, think, meditate, take the time to actually work this truth into your heart. It will not happen immediately. Um, there's, there's a common, uh, commonly understood problem that we know something in our head, but we don't know it in our heart. And people will say that many people will miss heaven by 18 inches, the 18 inches between their head and their heart. Because they know things in their head, but they've never actually known it in their heart. Well, how, how do you get it? How, how does it move those 18 inches? It's like you have to slow down and ponder and meditate. And in the midst of suffering, in the midst of trials, um, that can feel difficult, but it's the most important work that you can do. It's to slow down, take a breath, and roll these truths over in your mind over and over again. And so what is Asaph meditating in this moment? What is he meditating on? 
He says, your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God. You're the God who works wonders and you've made your might known. You've made known your might among the peoples. This made me think of Peter in John 6, where everybody's abandoning Jesus. And he says, are you, will you leave as well? And Peter answers for the disciples and says, where else are we going to go? You have the words of life. And Asaph is saying, where else am I going to go in my distress? There's only one true holy God. There's only one great God. What God is like this God? There's nowhere else that I can actually find the, the security of this God. And then he remembers specifically something about who God is. And, and what does he turn to? As an Old Testament believer, what is the greatest revelation of God's power, of his redeeming mercy in the Old Testament? It's the Exodus. It's the leaving Egypt and coming into the promised land. And God um, judging Egypt and saving his people across the Red Sea This is the thing that they turn to and remember. But in particular, as you read this psalm, he says, it makes, uh, you get the sense that this situation has made him feel uh, hopeless and helpless. That he's saying, how long is this going to take? How long, he's been waiting for a long time. He's remembering things that happened long ago when he was worshiping God. He's saying this, he's getting to the point of hopelessness. And he's feeling helpless, saying, I have no power to change this, and it seems like God is not coming through. And he remembers something about God that relates specifically to that question of his hopelessness and helplessness. He remembers God working at a time when the people of God felt hopeless and helpless, when their backs were to the Red Sea and the army of the Egyptians were on the other side, and they felt completely helpless. They had no power at all to save themselves. And he remembers God making a way through the sea. And so I think Asaph is deliberately choosing one aspect of who God is. He didn't talk about the creation. He didn't talk about God choosing Abraham. He didn't talk about even God making a covenant with David, which would have happened during Asaph's own lifetime. He chose something that's particular about who God is that relates to the questions his suffering is pressing upon him that are coming up in his heart. So he's remembering the power of God as a response, as an answer to his feeling of helplessness in the midst of his suffering. Now, um, I think you could, I could turn to a dozen different places in the Bible where you see people of God doing this exact thing. One that's been particularly powerful for me is is 2 Corinthians, where Paul, in 2 Corinthians 1, says that he is, um, he doesn't want them to be unaware of the trials that he faced in Asia. And he says he thought that he was going to die. He thought that he had received a death sentence. And the next verse says, but this happened to teach me not to rely on myself, but on God who, and he, he brings out one particular aspect of who God is, is God who raises the dead. So Paul is in severe suffering. He thinks he's going to die. And the particular thing about who God is and what he's done in the world that he remembers is the resurrection. He turns and he remembers that 
Christ was raised from the dead. And so if God was faithful for Jesus when he went into the tomb, he was, he'll be faithful for each one of us. And Paul, of course, wrote these things. This wasn't new information for Paul. He wrote in Romans 6 that if we've died with Christ, we've been buried with him in baptism, we will also be raised with him. We'll be united with him in that resurrection. So this wasn't new information for Paul, but he had to remember. And I imagine that this was not a, a snap remembrance. I, I think that it would be a useful exercise to go through Paul's writings and look at every single time he's talked about the resurrection and God raising God from the dead, every single moment where he, he points to that, to the power of God, to the faithfulness of God, to the unique redemptive work that Jesus accomplished in the resurrection. You know, I listened to a, a lecture by uh, a guy named Ben Myers talk about how the early church discussed the resurrection. And it sounded very Pauline. And I can imagine Paul thinking as he's facing what he thinks is the end of his life, and thinking about Jesus being the new Adam who is identifying with mankind and not only being a new Adam, but being the very source of life, right? And somehow the source of life enters into death, right? He enters into death and death finds out that it cannot contain the author of life and that Jesus from within death breaks the power of death and comes out on the third day, not only by himself, but resurrecting with him all the people of God throughout history, not merely back to this life, but to a new creation that is bringing us to new heights in greater fellowship with who God is. And I could imagine Paul thinking about these things, reflecting on them, and that changing his, um, his understanding of this particular situation. I, I personally have, have turned to 2 Corinthians 4 quite a bit. Um, in the midst of all my many trials, of my small sufferings that I feel like don't rise to the level to be considered suffering, um, I've thought about what those things, um, what are they accomplishing? And Paul says that we feel like we're being given over to death every day. But this death is at work in us so that life may be at work in other people. And he says that there's this exchange going on. There's these gears moving that as we are willingly putting ourselves in suffering's way so that other people may hear about who Jesus is, that death is at work in us so that life may be work, at work in other people. And this so that praise and thanksgiving may increase to God. And his conclusion is that these are light momentary afflictions, not worthy to be compared with the eternal weight of glory that they're working for us. And that has been particularly helpful for me as I feel like I'm being constantly frustrated in all my plans, being unproductive, and it feels like I'm not getting anywhere, constantly inconvenienced, constantly misunderstood, and thinking this is necessary if people will hear if people will actually have the life that is at work in me, and that I hope through God's grace will be at work in them. Um, to finish, I, I heard an illustration about this kind of thinking recently that I think is, is too good not to reuse. There's some illustrations where you feel like, 
I, I should come up with my own illustration. And other times, it's, that's too good. I need everybody to hear this illustration. So why, why do we say we need to think? We need to remember. If you go to the doctor and he tells you, you have high blood pressure, you have heart disease, and red meat is part of the problem. He shows you the data. He shows you information about your, your body, how your heart is. He shows you the information about the data of people of your age with your diet and your health. If you continue eating lots of red meat, the likelihood of a heart attack is very high. And you are convinced by the data. He convinces you with reason, right? And then the next week, you go to your friend's barbecue, and you see the grill. With your eyes, you see steaks on the grill. With your ears, you hear them sizzle, and you smell something wonderful as heat and fat and salt come together on the grill, and it smells delicious. And in that moment, if you live by sight, you say, that doctor doesn't know what he's talking about. I am going to eat this steak because it's delicious. And you can even begin to taste it before you, you actually dig in. What he needs to do is think. He needs to remember. He needs to reason with himself and say, I have been convinced. I have been shown the data. This is true. And so even though in this moment, what I'm looking at is telling me something different. It's telling me this steak is delicious and I will be happy if I eat it. I need to remember what is actually true about God. And the same is true for us. You've come to know and believe that he is good. You've come to see that he is a steadfast, trustworthy savior. He has shown you over and over again. But that does not mean there will not be situations in your life when you see something that looks like a steak on a grill that says, this is better or in the midst of suffering that says God is not who he says he is. And in those moments, you need to stop and think about who he is. Open the Bible, cry aloud to God, and remember the particular aspect of who he is that relates to your present situation. And I think that is what Asaph meant to teach us. There's many Psalms that you can look at about suffering where you understand the situation that the person is in. And you can you can deduce from the things that he says what was going on when he wrote it. This particular psalm is not one of those psalms. I think it's deliberately vague so that we would apply it to all of our situations, that we would learn regardless of what distress that we are facing, that there is something about who God is. There is something about what he has done for us that we can remember that will change our despair into worship, which is exactly what Asaph did. By the end of the psalm, he's exploding in worship for what God has done in saving the people of God. So let us uh, close and praise him for what he's done. Father, we thank you that um, you have given us a rich treasure that in scripture we can look and see what you've done throughout history, how you've revealed yourself, how you have shown yourself to be faithful, and that in this Bible, we can find situations that relate to our particular temptations, relate to our particular sufferings, so that we can know you and praise you. Lord, so often I miss out on this because I, I simply do not turn to you. Father, I ask that you would work in my heart, that you would work in the hearts of everybody here, that we would turn to you, that we would know you 
and that we remember who you are. Father, we thank you that you've promised to be with us in the midst of every situation. And we pray that you would draw near to us as we draw near to you. We pray this in your name. Amen.